Hello, everyone, and welcome to Music, Facts, and Figures by Mark and Nacito, which was changed again. If you notice that, um, it used to be Music, Facts, and Figures, a podcast by Mark and Nacito. Now it's called Music, Facts, and Figures by Mark and Nacito. Reason being, um, I'm taking a class this semester at MSU, Metropolitan State University of Denver, a uh, multimedia class in did a lecture on podcasts, and they mentioned that um, you shouldn't use the word podcast in your, in your podcast title, which, yes, many, many, many folks do that. I'm not going to lie. Um, but if I'm being lecture that, I'm going to stop doing that. So, again, my, my, my podcast, both audio and YouTube, is going to be called Music, Facts, and Fingers by Mark and Estito. So, that's it. I think it's common sense, you know, it's a podcast, so why should I call it, you have the word podcast in the title, I mean, doesn't matter overall, I don't know, but if I'm being lectured about it, maybe I should take it out, so, um, who knows, right, <laughs> so today we're going to continue my series, the History of Music, we're in 1967, this is going to be part three of the, of the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it's been a while since my last podcast, probably about a month ago or so, give or take. And I'm I apologize for that for coming out with the podcast like a little bit later, and I'm hoping I can do one sooner next time. But yeah, I'm working on a four part series of on the Beatles album, Southern Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It's that great of an album, or needs four parts to it. I remember part one was about the album itself in the Beatles' own words. Part two was about the album cover in the Beatles' own words. Today I'm going to go in depth about one of the songs on the album, and that was the that's the last track of the album called "A Day in the Life." It's written by both John Lennon and Paul McCartney. It's a very very structured song. Very, I mean, I think it is. It's very, it's a great song. It's very experimental, very avant garde. Um, if you know the reason, if you know the song, then you know. Well, what I'm talking about. Um, but this is going to be a more in-depth article about it. And I'm going to read. Taken from the book, Paul McCartney, Many Years Now, published in 1997 by Barry Miles. And it includes some interviews by Paul McCartney, with Paul McCartney and various other Beatles probably in this. Um, I kind of skimmed through it. Um, so, uh, I'm gonna, like I do with the Beatles anthology book, I'm gonna announce who's doing the quote, like Paul McCartney, John Lennon, you know, etc. So, um, yeah, that's it. That's all I have right now. Um, if you like my podcast, please follow me on apps such as Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you have any comments and concerns, please feel free. I encourage you to email me at markrocks, M-A-R-K-R-O-C-K-S, 77 at gmail.com, or pick me on Facebook, which right now my email is kind of weird, so I think Facebook may be the better option to reach out and communicate with me if you want. www.facebook.com backslash mark.inestito. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-N, Nancy Nancy, 
A C as in cat I T O. So yeah. Let's get started. <clears throat> Studio One at Abbey Road um, is a cavernous aircraft hangar of a place used almost exclusively for classical recording. As large as a concert hall with enough space for several symphony orchestras to spread out. Sir Edward Elgar, Sir Thomas Beach Beecham, Sir Malcolm Sargent, Sir John Barbieroli, and Yehudi Menuhin. Sorry for the pronunciation of these names. I can't pronounce them right. <laughs> I apologize. All recorded there. It is strictly functional functional space, a vast expanse of parquet flooring littered with movable sound baffles and bits of scaffolding, gray walls which with movable sound baffles. Why is that right? Which which excuse me, which might once have been white, covered by scores of large square sound baffles like a sixties sci fi movie and studded with speaker cabinets, part of the ambiophonic feedback system. Had Sir Malcolm looked in on Fe February 10th, 1967, he would have been in for a shock. The studio was filled with balloons and flower children and tattered lace and favored, faded velvet tripped around the room, blowing rainbow bubbles. Three Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, Keith Richards, and Mick Jagger, accompanied by Marianne Faithful, paraded in King's Road psychedelic finery. The falling scarves, crushed velvet and satin trousers, and multicolored boots. Donovan, the cosmic troubadour, Graham Nash, the only psychedelic member of the Hollies, the monkey, Mike Naismith, Patty Harrison, George's wife, and dozens of other friends milling around the edge of the room. The four Dutch designers, known as the Fool, arrived dressed in as characters from the uh, Tarot, carrying tambourines and bells while the mighty Abbey Road air conditioners worked hard to control the rich fragrance of jaw sticks and marijuana. At the center of stood George Martin and Paul McCartney, preparing to conduct the symphony orchestra, who were been at, being asked to their astonishment and for the first time in their careers to improvise. The orchestra and George Martin had been asked to attend in full evening dress, which the Beatles also promised they would wear. The Beatles did not keep their word, but the orchestra and George Martin looked very smart in their tuxedos. In order to get them into the mood to play something unconventional and encourage in them an element of playful spontaneously, the Beatles went among the players, handing out party favors. Mal Evans had been sent to a joke shop on Great Russell Street and returned with plastic stick on nipples, plastic glasses with false eyes, rubber balled Tates, some with knotted handkerchiefs, balance on them, huge fake cigars, party hats, and streamers. David McCollum, the leader of the London Philharmonic 
wore a large red false nose. Erich Grunberg, uh, the leader of the second violins, had on a pair of flowery paper spectacles and held his bow in a large gorilla paw. <laughs> the bassoon players offered waters and Anne Fawcett had balloons attached to their instruments, which inflated and deflated with each note, raising a laugh from George Martin. Several filmmakers with handheld cameras circled the room, which, by the way, was there was a uh, a promo video for A Day in the Life, which was probably shot around on this night or day, whatever it was, night probably. Okay, the Beatles were recording A Day in the Life, one of their most experimental tracks, but also one of the most beautiful and satisfying. It is a perfect example of a successful Lennon-McCartney collaboration. It also encapsulates the results of Paul's two years of interest in experimentation in avant-garde circles. And McKellen they're going to begin to play a long free-form chord over 24 bars with, with each player beginning at his lowest possible note and slowly moving up to the scale to his highest. At the same time, going from pianissimo to fortissimo. But the sound was fed back into the studio. By the 100 amniophonic speakers around the walls, filling the space with a massive wall of sound, more like a live concert than a recording session. Paul McCartney. It was a song that John brought over to me at Cavendish Avenue. It was his original idea. He had been reading the Daily Mail and brought the newspaper with him to my house. We went upstairs to the music room and started to work on it. He had the first verse. He had the war and a little bit of the second verse. John told John Lennon told Rolling Stone, A day in the life, that was something I dug it. That was something I dug it. It was a good piece of work between Paul and, and me. I had, I had, I read the news today a bit, and it turned Paul on. Now and then we really turn each other on with a bit of song, and he just said, yeah, bang, bang, like that. It just sort of happened beautifully. Paul McCartney. The verse about the politician blowing his mind out in the car we wrote together, it has been attributed to Tara Brown. The Guinness here, which I don't believe in the case, certainly as we were writing it, I was not attributing it to Tara in my head. And John said it might have been. In my head, I was imagining a politician bombed out on drugs who stopped at some traffic lights and he didn't notice that the lights had changed. The blue his mind was purely a drug reference, nothing to do with a car crash. In actual fact, I think I spent more time with Tara than John did. I'd taken Tara up to Liverpool. I was with Tara when I had the accident, when I split my lip. We were really quite good friends, and I introduced him to John. Anyway, if John said he was thinking of Tara, then he was... But in my head, it wasn't to do with that. Tara Brown was a son of, the, of Lord and Lady Ornamore and Brown, whose great-grandfather was a brewer, Edward Guinness. Tara went to Edson and had and had he lived would have inherited one million shillings at the age of twenty-five. A charming, likable boy with a wide grin and his hair brushed forward in the, in a beetle cut 
He was a great friend of Brian Jones and often stayed overnight tripping on LSD with Brian Keith Richards and Anita Pallenberg at Brian's flat in Courtfield Road. In the book, Shutters and Blinds, Anita described one trip with him. I remember being with Taylor Brown on one of the first acid trips. He had a Lotus sports car and suddenly near Sloan Square, everything went red. The lights went red. The trees were flaming and we just jumped out of the car and left it, and left it there. Tara died in the early hours of the morning of December 18th, 1966. On his way to visit David Vaughn, who was painting a design on the front of Tara's King's Road Shop, Dandy Fashions. He smashed his Lotus Elan into the back of, the, of a parked van while swerving to avoid a Volkswagen, which had pulled out in, in his path in Redcliffe Gardens and Earl's Court. He was 21. The coroner's report on his death was issued in January of 1967. John told Playboy, I was reading the paper one day and noticed two stories. One was about the Guinness hair who killed himself in the car. That was the main headline story. He died in London in a car crash. On the next page was a story about 4,000 potholes in the streets of Blackburn, Lancashire, that needed to be filled. The pothole stories appeared in the January 7th, 1967 issue. And Daily Mail. Paul McCartney. We looked through the newspaper and both wrote the verse, How Many Holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. I like the way he said Lancashire, which is the way you pronounce it up north. Then I had this sequence that fitted. Woke up, fell out of bed, and we had to link them. This was the time of Tim Leary's Turn On, Tune In, Drop Out, and we wrote, I love to turn you on. John and I gave each other a knowing look. Uh-huh, it's a drug song. You know that, don't you? Yes, but at the same time, our, our stuff is always very ambiguous. And turning on can be sexual, too. So come on. As John and I looked at each other, a little flash went between our eyes, like, I love, I love to turn you on. A recognition of what we were doing. So I thought, okay, we've got to have something amazing that will illustrate that. When we, we, we took it to the studio, I suggested let's put aside 24 bars and just have Mal count them. They said, well, what are you going to put there? I said, nothing. It's just going to be one chunk, 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 two chunk, 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 three. And you can hear Mal in the background doing that. He counted down, and on bar 24, he hit the alarm clock. It was just a period of time, and arbitrary length of bars, which is very cage thinking. I'm using his name to cover all the sins, but that kind of avant-garde thinking came from the people I had been listening to. Next, they had to come up with something to put in, in the gap. The 24 bars had been recorded with increasing amounts of reverberation. Reverberate, reverberation, excuse me. Gosh. On Mao's voice, so by the last bar, there was a there was a tremendous echo on it. Paul also had discordant piano chords over Mao's countdown, which he recorded the grand opening chords and piano track for the song. The basic tracks were recorded on nineteen on January nineteenth and twentieth, 
1967, with Ringo adding a new drum track on February 3rd. Paul McCartney, quote, we persuaded Ringo to play on play Tom Toms. It's sensational. He normally didn't like to play lead drums as a word, but we coached him through it. We said, come on, you're fantastic. This will be really beautiful. And indeed it was. Uh, unquote. It was not until another week had passed during which they worked on Paul's title song, Southern Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It made promo films of Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever. And they returned a day in the life. By now, Paul had decided what to do with the 24 bars. He asked George Martin for a symphony orchestra. The Beatles had never used one before. And as a company man, George Martin immediately thought of the cost. He describes his reaction in Summer of Love. Quote, nonsense, I replied. You cannot cannot have a symphony orchestra. That's for a few chords, Paul. Waste of money. I mean, you're talking about 90 musicians. Thus spake the well-trained corporate lackey still lurking somewhere inside me. Yet my imagination was fired. A symphony orchestra. I could see that at once that would be, that could make a lovely sound. Unquote. Paul McCartney. No, Paul told him what he wanted to do with, with it. And in the end, they settled on half an orchestra, 41 players, which they could then double track to make it a whole. Paul McCartney, quote, First we wrote out the music for the part where the orchestra had proper chords to do. After somebody spoke and I went into a dream, big pure chords came come in. But for the other orchestra parts, I had a different idea. I sat John down and suggested to him that he and he liked it a lot. I said, "Look, all these composers are doing really weird avant-garde things, and what I like to do here is give the uh, I lost my spot. My dogs are going crazy here. Hold on, time out." Okay, I apologize. I apologize. I'm back. All right. I sat John down and suggested it to him. He liked it a lot. I said, look, all these composers are doing really weird avant-garde things, and what I like to do here is give the orchestra some really strange instructions. We could tell them to sit there and be quiet. But that's been done. Or we could have our own ideas based on this movement about. So this is what we did. I said, right, save all the arranging. We'll take the whole orchestra as one instrument. And I wrote it down like a cooking recipe. I told the orchestra, there are 24 empty bars. On the ninth bar, the orchestra will take off, and it will go from its lowest note to its highest note. You start with the lowest note in the range of your instrument and eventually go through all the notes of your instrument to the highest one. But the speed at which you do, it is your own choice. You've got to get from your lowest to your highest. You don't have to actually use all your notes, but you've got to do those two. That's the only restriction. So that was a brief, a, li a little avant-garde brief. The orchestra consisting mostly of members of the new Philharmonic 
Harmonia was unaccustomed to ad-libbing. Paul McCartney, quote, so we had to go around and talk to them, all seeing them, all separate. What's all this, Paul? What exactly do you, in your own speed, what do you mean any way I want? Yeah, the trumpets got the idea rather easily. I said, you can do it all in one spurt, spurt if you like, but you can't go back. You've got to end at your top note or have done your top note. It was interesting because you found out the internal character of an orchestra. For instance, all the strings went together like sheep, all looking at each other to see who was going up. If you're going up, so am I. Uh, they tried to get go up together as a bank. Trumpets had no such reservations whatsoever. Trumpets are notoriously the guys who got who go to the club because you need to wet your whistle. You need plenty of spittle. So they were very free. They did actually get a little organized by George Martin. I didn't want that amount of restriction on them. And in my instructions to them, I didn't give it. But George, knowing a symphony orchestra and their logic, he decided to give him little sing posts along the way. The guests moved to the sides of the studio. The two conductors raised their batons. Uh, my spot again. I apologize. <laughs> I'm ringing for my phone here, and I keep hitting it, and it keeps going up to the top, whatever. All right, the guests move in the, the sides of the studio. The two conductors raise their batons. George Martin in evening dress and Paul McCartney in a red butcher's apron and a purple and black psychedelic paisley shirt. And recording began. The orchestra played the chord through five times in all, and each take was very different. Then George Martin and his team had to synchronize it with their original four-track master since they did not have an eight-track machine. The engineer, Ken Townsend, lashed up a method of starting all the tape machines simultaneously using a 50 hertz signal. But even then, the synchronization wasn't quite perfect. And on the final mix, the orchestra can just be heard going in and out of time. Paul McCartney, quote, and it became what's been referred to as a music, musical icon. It is a very famous sound bite. Of course, John loved it. It was great to bring those ideas to it, but this is the difference between me and Cage. Mine would just be in the middle of a song as a little solo. His would be the whole thing. So we did this, and it was a great session. Unquote. There was ever an example where up-to-date equipment would have improved a recording it is a day in the life because EMI was still using an antiquated four-track equipment. Nine years after American record companies such as Atlantic had switched to eight-track, George Martin was constantly forced to transfer one track to another in order to record the next layer of sound, as well as taking up a tremendous amount of studio time. Each transfer multiplies the signal-to-noise ratio. Introducing tape hiss. Two copies creates four times the amount of hiss, but a third copy increases it by nine times. 
So George Martin was constantly juggling tracks and worrying about keeping a track free. There was a lot of hiss and, and noise on day in the life as a pair of decent headphones will show. George Martin and his engineers did a brilliant job considering that they were working in a museum, but the sound quality would have been better that had it been um, recorded on modern equipment. It was typical of EMI that when they did finally decide to upgrade, they opted for an 8-track instead of buying one of the 16-track machines that had already become standard throughout the industry. By then, however, rock groups had become accustomed to using the top-of-the-line equipment in independent studios, and EMI had replaced the 8-track with a 16 within a year. Experimental or avant-garde are often derogatory terms in popular journalism, as if the experiment was going to be performed upon the public rather than on the art form, John Lennon was deeply suspicious of any conscious intellectual attempt to ban or break the rules. One Only later, when he was with Yoko, did he relax and accept that most attempts to challenge the rules were perfectly valid, even if they were on occasion pretentious. In September 1966, in a recorded conversation with Miles, John saw how Yoko had helped him see that he wasn't stupid. Quote, she wouldn't have loved the dummy, which was, I was beginning to think I was, so that helped. Of course, she goes through the same thing, but I could help her in the same way. Once I got over my intellectual reverse snob snobbery about Amagard and the, the sort of thing which I had to get over, unquote, Miles, I think Barry Miles, the writer of this book, you still got it to an extent, unquote. John Lennon, quote, sure, sure, I can't help it. It will take a long time to wear off, but I'm getting better, unquote. Paul's attitude was almost the complete opposite. He had an open mind about even the most extreme avant-garde experiments, though that did not necessarily mean that he liked the art and, or, or music produced. In the two-year period leading up to Salt and Pepper, he was at his most inquisitive and receptive, listening to every type of music, going to art openings and attending experimental plays. He would go to see John, his head filled with the latest ideas, and John would accept them from Paul and took many of them on board. But it was not a good time for John, and he was happy to let Paul take over the running of the ship. He told Miles, I was still in a real big depression in Pepper, and I know Paul wasn't was at the time. He was feeling full of confidence, but I wasn't. I was going through a murder. One of the, one of the reasons the Beatles were such an ex exceptional group was that they did not rest on their laurels. Rather than stay with the simple pop music formula of their early work, the period of Beatlemania, they pushed the boundaries of the music, making each album more complex than the one before, although never enough to alienate the fan, fans. They're, they're the first group to make rock and roll an art form and show the other bands what could be done with it. They're also the first to examine the whole spectrum of modern music, 
to see what was happening and other musical forms and incorporate any ideas that might be useful to Beatle music. A postmodernist shopping trip which passed effortlessly from gender to gender. George Harrison introduced elements of traditional Indian music, which became an important part of their later work. With Nowhere Man and help, John Lennon's lyrics became more confessional, less poppy. Ringo's drumming became more sophisticated. According to Phil Collins, his drum fills on Day in the Life would be impossible to duplicate. As a country and western music lover, Ringo was, was responsible for the country's twang to some of the numbers, usually those written especially for him by John and Paul. Paul gleaned musical ideas and influences from every part of the cultural spectrum, from classical music to avant-garde, music hall to the cutting edge of modern jazz. He was first exposed to classical music by the Ashers and George Martin leading eventually to the string arrangements on yesterday in Eleanor Rigby. Hold on, time out. I apologize for that. <laughs> I apologize. Crazy dogs. Um, where am I out here? Sorry. All right. He was, okay, Paul McCartney. He was first, okay, Paul, Paul Glean, musical ideas and influences from every part of the cultural spectrum. From classical music to avant-garde, music hall to the cutting edge of modern jazz. He was first introduced, exposed to classical music by the Ashers and George Martin, leading eventually to the string arrangements of Yesterday and Eleanor Rigby and a French horn and piccolo trumpet on solos on For No One. Sometimes the influence was direct. For instance, when Paul was working on Penny Lane, he used a number of flutes, piccolos, trumpets, and a flugelhorn for the backing track. But he remained dissatisfied with the results. Then he saw the English Chamber Orchestra playing from Guy Ford Cathedral, Box Second, Brandenburg Concerto in F Major on the BBC television show Masterworks. David Mason was a plain was playing piccolo trumpet. Mason was telephoned by the next morning and summoned to Abbey Road for the evening sessions. Meanwhile, while he was there, Paul composed on the spot a perfect solo for him, the play in the middle eight. He sang it for to George Martin, who transcribed it for B-flat piccolo trumpet. David Mason played it, and Penny Lane was complete. George Martin was quite comfortable with using radio clips and tape Along. I think that's it. I think that's it. That's it. That's all I have. I apologize for the interruptions of my dogs barking, but can I say that dogs, right? <laughs> what do you expect? But that's all I have for today for this podcast. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Um, again, any comments, concerns, please email. And I'm going to say Facebook because my email is acting kind of weird. So Facebook me at facebook.com backslash mark.inacito. Please, I encourage you guys to comment. I can I appreciate any comments, concerns, bad, bad or good, whatever they are. Please please feel free to drop a line. I, I, I will read them and I will respond to you. Um, anyway, uh, next podcast I'm going to be doing is part four of the Sonic Pepper album series. 
Um, so there'll be an article I found on Brian Wilson and the influence he had on the album and what he did for his future work after listening to the album. So that's part four of this, and that's the final part of the Sun Pepper series. And I should have mentioned this from the from the start. Um and then, and then this is going to be only an audio podcast, and so is my next one. Then I'm going to go back to YouTube again for my podcast. I'm not leaving YouTube. I just don't do a podcast on YouTube all the time. So those that like to watch my YouTube podcast, you got to wait for a few more weeks or a few more podcasts in general. So anyway, see you next time. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it. If you like my podcast, please follow me on Spotify, iHeartRadio. Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts under Music Facts and Figures by Mark Anacito and my YouTube channel by the same name. Music Facts and Figures by Mark Anacito. Uh, thank you again for tuning in. I appreciate it. Have a great week. Uh, goodbye and God bless.